Mornings like this do remind me of my preaching classes when you're preaching to four other trainees. And, uh, but the reality is, and we're going to kind of touch on this later on in the sermon, the idea that where two or three are gathered, the, the tendency is to kind of think like this is a down Sunday or a less than Sunday. And, and I, don't, I don't feel that uh, from a leadership standpoint. I don't feel that from a preaching standpoint. Uh, it's not as though like, oh, there's not, there's not a bigger crowd, so we're just kind of going through the motions. I don't feel that, and, and my hope and prayer is that we as a church don't feel that, um, though our tendency is to go there for sure. So we're going to jump back into Hebrews this morning. Uh, we took last week off, but we're going to go back into Hebrews. Um, we are seven chapters in thus far, so we're more than half the book that we have preached through Already, And what, what we found is uh, this focus on Jesus' supremacy. Uh, the authors continually painted this picture that the Son of God, Jesus himself, he's greater than angels, he's greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than David, greater than the priesthood that was in effect. So what we're finding, what we're going to find today as well, is that everything that came before Jesus' earthly life was a shadow of the real thing. And, and so... His promises are sure, whereas ours, our promises that we make are routinely broken. Jesus is where a tired, busy people come to find true rest. Salvation is found only in him, not in our feeble religious exercises that we engage in. And so what we've found in Hebrews thus far is an onslaught of reminders that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And as we move forward, we should wonder, how is the author going to tell us, again, in a different way, how Jesus is better? Because he will. This is what we're going to continually hear throughout this book, is that Jesus is better. Yet, in the midst of these continuous examples of Jesus' greatness are warnings as well. Warnings to not forget, to not drift, to not wander away from Jesus because that is our propensity so that we would remember, we would listen to, we would believe in Jesus. And the reality is we need to hear this over and over again. So when a child is tired of hearing instruction that they have heard repeatedly, they don't need to not hear that again. They need to hear it again, maybe in fresh ways, but they need to hear the truth that they are overlooking over and over. Last Sunday, we had a great illustration in, of this in our family. We were driving somewhere after church, and Casey was just talking about the upcoming week, what our plans were for Christmas, how everything was going to happen within our family context. And, and within that conversation we, she was giving, she was like getting to this point where she was uh, talking about how Christmas is more than opening presents, giving this gospel reminder, and she just made this statement, Christmas is more than opening presents, and was about to like drive her point home, and she was uh, abruptly interrupted by one of the kids who was very excited and blurted out, yeah, because then we get to play with them. That, that, that was what comes after the opening, the presents, and, and so it was a great illustration for us of the need to continually remind our kids and ourselves, that Jesus is better. We live in a culture that's driven by entertainment. 
What's the next new thing? What will captivate us? And so for us, in our context today, repetition is often viewed as monotony. Repetition is oftentimes viewed as monotony. Historically, though, in the Bible, in speeches, in a lot of different contexts, repetition communicates emphasis. And that's what we're finding in Hebrews. The author is continually bringing us back to Jesus, to the fact that he is better. And and so in and through this, we know that we need to hear the gospel. That's what we need to hear this morning. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to give us today and continuously as well. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8, just six verses this morning. So I'm going to read these and then we'll jump into them. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. All right. So verse 1 begins, now the point in what we are saying. So the author is making a point, telling us to listen closely uh, to what follows. And then he continues, we have such a high priest. So as an attuned reader, we should ask ourselves what such a high priest is being talked about here. So just prior to this, in chapter 7, we read, a couple weeks ago, we read this. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And so that high priest is holy. This is talking about Jesus. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, the high priest, the Levitical high priest that offered sacrifices for Israel. Jesus has no need to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So this, such a high priest, is talking about how Jesus is holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, he's separated from sinners, he's altogether different than the priests that we find within the nation of Israel. And then this also is referencing the fact that Jesus is far superior to the Levitical priesthood that was pervasive throughout the Old Testament system that God had instituted. So, The such a high priest is that, what we read in verses 27 and 28, but then it's also summarized here in verses 1 and 2. It's described here as one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So Jesus is sitting on a throne that's not just over a country, not just over a city, but over the world. It's a cosmic throne. He's a minister in the holy places. 
in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So I want to flesh out the meaning of these verses, but we're going to do it from a specific angle. So we'll come back uh, to these verses specifically to the idea of a minister in the holy places and in the true tent that the Lord set up. Then verse 3 speaks of the fact that all high priests are appointed to their position for a specific purpose, which is to offer gifts and sacrifices. So the role, the job of the priests was not glamorous in any way whatsoever. It was a bloody, putrid, gut-wrenching occupation. It's not like people were probably excited to go to, to their job. Like, what's it going to involve? It's going to involve a lot of blood. Death was rampant for them. And I think it's difficult for us to even conceive what this role entailed. Because within our culture, what we do with anything that's uncomfortable or awkward or messy is we hide it. We move it away from ourselves. I even see this like with elderly people, how we will move them into homes homes, and we'll just kind of move them out of the way where we don't have to see them, we don't have to be inconvenienced by this reality. We do not like things that are messy or uncomfortable. I was thinking about this on Friday night. Uh, Casey and I were awakened at 1245 uh, by, a, well actually I should say, Casey was awakened at 1245 by a loud thud. Uh, and then there was crying, uh, and she then yelled for me after like 45 seconds because she realized that Roxy had fallen out of her bed. When she fell out of her bed, she also hit her head or hit her nose, and it was the worst bloody nose I have ever seen. Like it would not stop, and we were up then for like the next 30 to 40 minutes cleaning up this mess. But I, it just reminded me, like that's not fun. It was really messy. And yet, in a much greater way, this is what these priests dealt with, with animal. It's not like even my child, right? Like, my child, I'll I'll love and care for, I'll do anything for my child. But this is for sinful people bringing their mess to them. They're sacrificing these animals for people. So these priests are offering sacrifices according to the Old Testament law that God had instituted for the nation of Israel. And this was the appropriate function of priests on earth. There's a formula for them to follow. Jesus didn't offer sacrifices in the prescribed way. Levitical priests, they brought bulls and goats, grains and oil. Jesus went to the altar with himself. He brought to the altar the sacrifice that most clearly embodied the flawed human existence he came to save. The fullness of the human condition perfected through his obedient suffering. His sacrifice would have disqualified him from a priesthood on earth because it conflicted with God's law. He was not in compliance with what these priests in the Old Testament system were instructed to do. But we learn in verse 5 of the verses we're looking at this morning that there's a profound reality embedded in the sacrifices, in the priesthood, embedded in the whole Old Testament system, even in this this idea of a true tent or a tabernacle that's talked about in these verses. It says in verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So a helpful way to read the Bible is to understand the point of the Bible is Jesus. 
This is how we should read the Bible. The point of the Bible is Jesus. Okay, so everything in the Bible is pointing towards Jesus, foreshadowing Jesus, whispering Jesus' name, providing a glimpse as to who Jesus is and what he has come to fix. So when Jesus comes on the scene in the incarnation, or when he comes and takes on human flesh, what we've celebrated this past week, what he's doing is he's blowing away the fog that shrouded true reality. He's blowing away the fog that makes it hard for us to see what really is. So all of the physical examples that we find in the Bible are ultimately pointing to a greater spiritual heavenly reality. So everything we find in the Old Testament, it's pointing forward to Jesus. The priests, they are pointing forward to Jesus. The sacrifices are pointing forward to Jesus. The tent, the tabernacle, the temple is pointing forward to Jesus. So I want to take some time and, and talk about uh, this copy and shadow concept as it relates to the tent, because the tent is mentioned in verses 2 and 5. So let's look a little bit more closely at this. So back in the book of Exodus, so the second book of the Bible, there was a pattern given to Moses as to how the tent was to be constructed. We read about this in verse 5 of the verses we're looking at this morning. It says there, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So there was a pattern presented to Moses, but what needs to be understood is that the earthly structure was never meant to be ultimate. That structure that, that Moses was involved in constructing, it was never meant to be the ultimate thing. It was made in the pattern of something greater. It was made in the pattern of something greater. It was a copy and a shadow of a heavenly reality. So he was constructing a physical tent that could then be pitched. It was a temporary tent. It was a tent that could be moved. It was a tent where God's presence would come, but also God's presence would go as well. And as time went on in the life of Israel, what we find is that Solomon, a man, was... Uh, instructed to build a temple. So, so not just a tent that could then be put up and taken down and moved as they wandered, but Solomon was instructed to then make a temple, a permanent structure, at least seemingly permanent structure. But even that would also be destroyed as well. So Moses and Solomon constructed a tent or a temple but verse 2 says that the tent that Jesus made was a true tent. So in a sense, the tent, the temple that was constructed by Moses and by Solomon were not true. They, they were false. They were shadows of the real thing. So the tent that Jesus set up, it was set up by God himself, not simply by man. So there's a certainty, a sturdiness, a fundamental unchanging nature as to the tent that God has set up for himself. We're going to talk about what that tent is, was uh, in just a moment. But the copy shadow principle is so important for us today because everything that we encounter, everything that we see here on this earth breaks. 
everything that we receive, like every Christmas present that you might have received this week is going to disappoint you. It's going to wear out. It's going to be maybe be eaten and be gone. Everything in our existence breaks or disappoints or runs out. And so when we think about a tent or anything that's unchanging, that is certain, that will always be there, it's hard for us to even conceive of that reality. But this is the tent that Jesus has constructed. So the physical realm has a really limited nature for us. But that doesn't mean it's meaningless. The physical realm is limited, but not meaningless. So we as a family, the O'Sell family, we had a phenomenal Christmas celebration. My wife is so good at spearheading a thoughtful, gift-giving experience for our children. And our kids loved it. They loved our celebration. Multiple of our kids said, this was the best Christmas ever. Which is great as a parent to hear until you reflect on it and you're humbled by the fact, well, they said that last year as well. So what was the best is no longer the best. And what is the best now won't remain the best either. And this is what we find to be normative in all of life. This happens over and over. Technological gadgets will be mundane in six months. Things that sparkle will lose their luster. Great treats will be eaten and no longer available for our consumption. Today's excitement is what makes up tomorrow's garage sales. That's just the reality of our existence here on earth. So when Solomon built a temple in Israel, many people looked at it and they were in awe of it. They loved it. They loved the fact that he'd worked for so many years. He created this immense, beautiful structure where people could come and they could worship. But it wasn't the efforts of man. It wasn't this impressive structure that made the temple glorious. What made the temple glorious was the presence of God. That's what made it special. And today, it's not impressive when a church has many people. It's not impressive when they have many buildings or campuses. What is remarkable in a church is God's presence. The point is not relevancy. The point is not a dynamic pastor. The point is not having tons of programs. The point is Jesus. The point is Jesus. The tent and the temple and all of its practices and furnishings were intended to be shadows of the forthcoming real thing. So God's house back in the day, in the Old Testament day, it was a building. But now God's house is a people. God's house is a people. His church. God's presence was found in the temple. But now God's presence is found as his people gather together in his name. People used to marvel at an impressive structure. Now, people are called to marvel at Jesus' church because of the love that we have for one another. And the key to all of this is Jesus. Jesus is the head of his church. 
Jesus is the reason that we would love one another in the way that would draw people to us because he is the one who's first loved us. Jesus is the key that unlocks the lock. Jesus is the fulfillment to all of the promises of the Old Testament. And so as Israel would go to the tent to cease from their foolish wandering, we now gather together as a church to curb our wandering from Jesus. We need this repeated reminder that Jesus is better because we're inundated with messages that tell us he's not enough or there's something that Jesus plus this thing is what will ultimately make us happy. But the reality is the Bible paints one picture. Jesus is enough. He's better than anyone or anything. And so Jesus calls us to abide with him unceasingly, to be with him, to rest in him, and then to join him in what's described in verse 6 and the verses we're looking at this morning as his excellent ministry. He has obtained a ministry that is excellent, much more excellent than what we find in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And this pushes us um, there's a number of chapters in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapters 3 through 5, that speak about Jesus' ministry and also what he replaced. So in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, what we find is it's talking about the ministry of the Old Testament. We could call this Moses' ministry. This is the Old Covenant. It's described in 2 Corinthians 3, that Moses had a ministry of death. Moses had a ministry of condemnation. Whereas Jesus had a ministry of righteousness. And, and it's emphasized, Jesus' ministry is permanent. It's not going to come and then go. His ministry, this ministry of righteousness, is permanent. So what we find in Jesus' ministry is that there's certainty. There's glory. There's confidence that we can have in Jesus' ministry, which contrasts with ourselves. Like, we, we know, if we're really honest with ourselves, that we're broken, we're flawed, we're feeble people, but that's not what we find in Jesus himself. There's certainty and glory and confidence in him. So when we look at him and we trust in him, it can lead us to have hope, and that's what we read in 2 Corinthians. It says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face. For to this day, when Israel reads the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. But when one turns to Jesus, the veil is removed. So there's this reality to read the Old Covenant, to live in an Old Covenant way, which is, when, when I say Old Covenant, I'm basically saying, I'm talking about God's laws. And so, a good summary of the Old Covenant is, obey, and you will be blessed. Disobey, and you will be cursed. Obey God's laws, you will be blessed. Disobey God's law, you will be cursed. And so, when we live that way, what we find is we're living with a veil over our eyes because we're not understanding the gospel. We're not understanding what Jesus has come and accomplished for us. Jesus comes to blow the fog away. And these verses in 2 Corinthians then go to speak 
of the freedom found in the gospel. We don't find freedom in the Old Testament law. We never will. We'll never find freedom by trying to obey God's law because we'll always break it. It is a ministry of death. The old philosopher Plato, uh, there's something known as Plato's parable of the cave. There's a quote that's going to be up here. It says this, Plato argued that our knowledge is like that of a man who is kept in a firelit cave and only sees the shadows of real objects when he looks at the cave's walls. So the idea is that someone is not seeing the real thing. They're only seeing the shadow on the wall on the wall because of the fire and the light that that's being given off by that fire and this is our spiritual reality without jesus but when we understand jesus ministry is one of mercy towards us when we understand what he has accomplished for us and when we trust in him it provokes hope and courage within us also hope and courage to join him in this ministry. And so there's this ministry that those who trust in Jesus, that, that they're then given. And it's called the ministry of reconciliation. So the idea being to reconcile people to Jesus, people who are far from Jesus, separated from Jesus, to reconcile them to Jesus. And then those who are trusting Jesus to reconcile them to one another. So the idea is to continually help Christian and non-Christian to blow the fog away so that we can see Jesus for who he really is. And we read in 2 Corinthians 5, it says there this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God sent his son Jesus to offer salvation to you. But that's not where it ends. God sent his son to offer salvation through those of us who are Christians as well. To go through us. We are reconciled to Jesus so that we might seek the reconciliation of others to Jesus. An ambassador is a sent one. Christians are sent to reconcile. And if we think about what reconciliation involves, it is a hard, messy task. Many of us would say, I really don't want to engage in reconciliation. Think about it in the, the context of marriage. To go to someone you're in conflict with is not easy. It's not fun. But that is what Christians are called to do over and over because this is what Jesus undertook for us. In the face of our belligerent rebellion, he patiently loved us. 
he bears with us. When we're staring down the face of circumstances where we're seething in anger, or we are overwhelmed by conflict, it is in those moments that we need clarity to know that Jesus has endured even more than that for us. He's endured more than that from us so that we would be saved. He has loved us when it was hard to love us. He has loved us when we were unlovable. And that's the motivation for us as we engage in this ministry of reconciliation. If kids or people are asking questions that maybe for some of us might seem elementary, our desire then is to help blow the fog away. Because when we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we will want that for other people. We will want them to know who Jesus is and what he has done for them. This is the excellent ministry that Jesus undertook on our behalf. And now, for those of us who are Christians, this is the ministry we're called into so that others might see and know the joyous life that's available to all. The idea being then that we no longer need to live with shadows, that we can understand Jesus for who he is. We can encounter his presence for real in a powerful way that it doesn't need to be far off. It it doesn't need to be something that we just long for, but it's something that's available to us. All right, a few points of gospel application to summarize this for us this morning. First of all, Jesus provides clarity. The whole point of the Bible is Jesus. Jesus blows the fog away, and he provides understanding for all of life. What was once an unclear shadow, now has light shown onto it to give clarity for us. Jesus is what we need. Life works in the way that it's intended when the king, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, sits on the throne of our hearts. When Jesus, who sits on the cosmic throne, sits on the throne of our hearts, that's how life works as it is intended to work. So we enter into the holy place not by cleaning ourselves up, by doing a bunch of religious activities. We enter into his temple. We enter into his holy place with him and because of him. So the temple, the offerings, the priests, all make sense in the light of what Jesus has accomplished. So the call for us is to believe in Jesus. He is the one that provides us clarity in all of life. But then this flows into our second point here, and that is the Old Testament is filled with meaningful riches. The Old Testament is not just a bunch of confusing stories. It can be. It can be. But the intention is that the whole Bible is one beautiful story that continually whispers the name of Jesus. And as we understand that, as we understand that all that comes before Jesus is intended to point us forward to him, it becomes one coherent story where we can better understand the whole of the gospel. And so my encouragement to us is to read that to read it even better read it with somebody else don't just sit down and i mean sit down and read it by yourself that's great but sit down and read it with somebody else as well 
so that we can help one another know Jesus, see Jesus in the white spaces, in the confusing parts of the Old Testament so that it then makes sense. Third, Jesus invites us to join him in this ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation that Jesus has accomplished in the hearts of Christians is a ministry that he now invites us into. If we're not a Christian, if we're not a Christian, and this is part of our dynamic here at Center Church, if we're not a Christian, then the invitation is for us to receive Jesus' reconciling work, to trust in Jesus' reconciling work for us, to know that that is how we are forgiven of our sin. But for those of us who are Christians, there's this ongoing, incessant, continual invitation to join Jesus in this ministry of reconciliation. This invitation is not a bummer. It's not a bummer. This is where we find our purpose. This is where we find our joy. Living life outside of what God intends for us, seeking to do our own thing, will only lead us to frustration and to confusion. And so we, as followers of Jesus, must find our role in this multifaceted ministry of reconciliation. This is what God has for us. This is how he has designed his church, that we would engage in this ministry of reconciliation and find the joy of other people encountering Jesus and seeing him as they never have been able to see him before. Lastly, there is this reality that we can see more clearly But the book of 1 Corinthians also talks about how we still see dimly. So there's this paradox. We can see more clearly. We can understand Jesus for who he is and what he's done. But there's also this dynamic that we still see dimly. As much as we gain clarity and understanding through Jesus, we still must humbly admit that we still have a lack that will not be fully known or seen until Jesus returns for us. The humbling part of this is that every Christian needs Jesus just as much as the non-Christian next to us. We need Jesus just as much as the next person. And so this whole idea of seeing more clearly does not lead us to pride or arrogance. It still ultimately ends in humility Jesus reveals himself, we still need Jesus just as much as the next person. And so this leads us to be slow to draw conclusions in many situations. There's oftentimes much more going on than what meets the eye. We see the physical, but we oftentimes don't see the spiritual and all that's going on. We're so often enamored with the stuff of life, but there's so much more than the physical things that we see and we taste and we touch. God is working, moving, revealing, changing in a spiritual realm that we don't fully know or see. And so there is this reality. As much as we can call someone else to press into Jesus, we need to do that as well because we still see dimly. We're still just as dependent on Jesus as the next person. So as we head into a new year, My hope is for us as Center Church, including all those 
who are not here with us this morning is that all the more that we would press into Jesus, that we would find clarity in life, we would find joy and hope in and through Jesus and Jesus alone, and that we would help lead others into this life that's full of hope, that's full of joy, that can only be found in and through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the fact that you have come. You've come and revealed yourself in such a way that we can see you for who you really are. We can understand that you came in a physical body and you offered that body in a sacrificial way to provide the sacrifice that was needed for our sins, the spiritual sacrifice needed for our sins. We thank you that you've come and accomplished something that we could not accomplish in and of ourselves. Thank you for your patience with us, that you are long-suffering, that you bear with us in our continued attempts to find life outside of you. You bear with us, you reveal yourself to us in greater ways. You woo us to yourself. God, wherever we're at this morning, I ask that even as we sing these songs, that we would gain a clearer picture of who you are. That your Holy Spirit would impress upon our hearts what we need to see, to hear, to understand where we're engaged in sin, we're running after things that cause veils to be put in front of our eyes, that cause us to be separated from you. I pray that there would be tenderness of heart in us to allow your Holy Spirit to work in us. Awaken us. You are a resurrecting God who takes dead things and brings them to life. May this not just be an abstract concept that's far from us, but may it be near to us. May we know this and feel this and be changed by this and bring this to others. That others would know your life, your joy, your hope that's so needed in a dark world. So God, stir our hearts. Draw us to yourself in these moments. In your great name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you guys to stand.